So we are doing a series this semester um, in the book of Revelation. We're going through this whole book, which means we're going to have to skip around a lot. Um, but these first five weeks, I really am slowing down in the first five chapters because they're so important. Tonight, we're doing the very end of chapter three. You can see on your handout. Now, let me give a very quick summary of what's happening in chapter two and three of this book of Revelation. Uh, chapters two and three focus on these letters to individual churches. There's seven churches, which we learned about in the first chapter. And so there's seven different short letters to seven different churches. But as a whole, it's still one letter to all the churches, if that makes sense. They're kind of reading each other's mail. That's basically what's happening because it's one actual letter that John wrote in a physical way and sent it out. So if you actually map the seven uh, cities that these letters go to, you start with Ephesus is the first one. If you look at chapter, if you have your Bibles, look at chapters two and three, and it goes in this order. It's like Ephesus, and then it starts going north to Smyrna, and then it kind of makes its way through these other churches and then begins to come down all the way. The most southern town is Laodicea, which is the seventh letter. Um, the reason for that is because it's literally following like a mail carrier's route. So the church would be delivered to Ephesus, they would read it. They would gather together in a group like this. They would read the whole of Revelation. And they would hear this part specifically addressed to them, but they would hear the whole book. And then they would send it then to the church at Smyrna. And they would read the whole letter, gather around, same idea. And so they're literally reading the messages to each other. And then you come down to the last one of Laodicea. So we're only going to talk about the last one, Laodicea, which happens to be the harshest one out of the seven. Um, which we'll see why in just a second. All of the letters follow this general format. I think this is interesting and helpful a little bit because they all begin with a, a short description of who Jesus is, which is based on the vision we talked about last week. It's really amazing if you go and read this, and I really encourage you to read chapters 2 and 3. Each one begins with this part of the vision from Jesus from last week that's going to apply directly to their need. And so then, basically, Jesus commends them for something, something you're doing great at, and then he rebukes them for something, something they're doing poor at, and then he provides a way forward. And that's how all the letters work. Except this one. It's missing one element. It's missing the praise. <laughs> Apparently there was nothing Jesus could think of that Laodicea was doing well at. And I love this part of this letter because it is so convicting. Like, I don't love that it's convicting, but it feels it's so relevant to me and, and the things that I struggle with. Like, I could have been Laodicean, for sure. And also, it identifies that churches have always had issues. You realize these churches existed within 100 years of Jesus, and they got all sorts of problems. So if you think your church is the only one that has its problems, it's not. All churches have problems because all churches are full of people like me and people like you. And we got all sorts of problems. And so it's really honest about the problems in the church, but it's also honest about the solution to our problems, which is, uh, in a word, it's Jesus. So let's listen to this letter to the Laodiceans and what Jesus calls them out on and what he offers them. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. 
I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may, may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray in these few minutes that we have to look here at your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ tonight and always. I pray. Lord, that you would be our teacher. Um, Lord, you know I, I identify with this passage and I hope others will so that we can really identify that we have a common need and we have a great Savior for our need and I pray that you would help us to do that only by your grace. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts together would be pleasing your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you do when you start to show signs of sickness. Um, it could be a tummy ache. It could be like a pain in your arm or your back or something's going on with like a part of your head. What do you do? If you're anything like me, you Google it. That's what I do. And it's going to take you where? Straight to WebMD, which is the cruelest of websites on the internet. Because you say, my finger hurts, and it says, clearly you're dying. But what WebMD is helpful for, and all these other websites, and some of you nursing majors are probably like, don't trust WebMD, but uh, you're probably right. But what it's helpful for is it gives you a list of like these symptoms of these are the things that I'm identifying with, that I'm like struggling with, and, and then it's kind of going to lead you to some like, what are the causes for those symptoms, and then it's going to lead you to some, some treatments, like what should you do about that. Um, this is basically how parenting works uh, when our kids are sick, so like... Our kids, had, so a few weeks ago, this may be TMI, should have talked to my wife about this, but a few weeks ago, our kids, like, both, both girls had, like, a, a rash uh, on, on their leg, legs, two of them, two kids and two legs. So they were, they had a rash, and they, and we were like, you know, what do you do when there's a rash? You, you Google it. And so, like, now we're looking through all the many different options, and it's giving us like possible ones and then what are some of the causes of these particular rashes and then it leads us to this conclusion of like, oh, this makes sense of what we think it is. And so we call our doctor and talk to him and go visit and we get a prescription. And like that's basically how parenting works. If you're not a doctor, this is all you can do is Google. So that's what we do. Um, but this is also like how we are going about diagnosing some spiritual conditions here tonight. Um, in this letter, and really, these letters, they all kind of follow that same thing, right? Uh, we're going to talk about symptoms. We're going to talk about causes for those symptoms in the church of Laodicea, and we're going to talk about the treatment for those symptoms. Because Jesus is being really honest with all of these churches, and with this one particularly, and he's saying, here's what your problem is. 
and here's what you can do about it. So let's first talk about the symptoms. What are the symptoms for the church of Laodicea? Well, verse 15 and 16 said it very explicitly, right? I know your works. Jesus knows all things. We've talked about this already this semester. Jesus knows everything about us. And he says, I see you and I know you. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. So their primary symptom as a church is that they were lukewarm. And Jesus is not a fan of this. Um, so what is going on? Why, why is, is Jesus being super harsh with his words, literally saying, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth? So here's some background, some stuff that I've learned about Laodicea that I think is really helpful. So I hope this doesn't bore you, but I actually hope this really helps us understand what's going on in this passage. So historians tell us that Laodicea was this very important city, like a super prominent and rich and wealthy city uh, in this area called the Lycus Valley. They were very self-reliant, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But they lacked one main thing in their city. So they had a lot going for them, but they lacked one thing. And this one thing they lacked, they were actually pretty embarrassed about because their neighboring towns had this thing uh, in, in, well, you know, in great supply. And it was clean water. They really lacked clean water in their city. Um, two towns around them, Hierapolis was a sister city located about six miles north, and they were known for their hot springs. So people would travel to this town, to, and they, they felt that there was some like healing quality to the hot springs in this town, like sitting in some, like I don't know, expensive jacuzzi in the football facility that makes your like legs better or whatever. So it's like that. Hierapolis was full of expensive jacuzzis. And... They were, so they were six miles away. Now to the, um, to the east uh, was Colossae. And Colossae, this is the same one from the Bible, the book of Colossians, that sat up in the mountains. And they were known for their refreshingly cool waters from the mountain springs as the snow melted and came down into the rivers. They were known for their nice cool water, right? So Laodicea sits in between these two places and they had no clean water, which is a huge deal, obviously, still today. It's a huge deal in that time. So they had neither hot springs nor cool, refreshing waters. What they actually had was like sludgy, you know, gross, Hartwell-like water that was like piped in literally from these other cities into their community. And the story goes that people who would come through Laodicea would, would drink the water of the city and they would vomit, they would spit it out of their mouth because they couldn't hold onto it because the water was lukewarm. So you're just starting to kind of make a little sense of what Jesus is saying. Because you are lukewarm, you are neither cold or hot, and I spit you out of my mouth. So what is he saying? I don't think Jesus is saying what sometimes we assume this passage means. I don't think Jesus is saying, you know what? You are not hype enough for me. You are not on fire. You remember you had that camp experience and it was a super great high? Where is that now? Now you're lukewarm. I don't think he's talking about our emotional state. Okay? I don't think he's talking about our feelings. And the reason why, follow the illustration. The Laodiceans, neighboring cities, provided something useful to their citizens and passerbys. Um, but Laodicea is not. They are not providing warm, healing water for the world around them, nor are they providing refreshingly cool water to comfort the people in their community. They're lukewarm. They're somewhere in the middle. Jesus is making an illustration. 
saying the Laodiceans had become so influenced by the culture around them that they had lost their witness in their community. They had become more influenced by the culture of wealth and prosperity than they were influencing the culture. Does that make sense? And so Jesus says he is disgusted by their compromise. So he's not talking so much about their excitement, which I think is what we read in this text, as he is their commitment. Now, excitement can follow commitment. And there's a place for excitement, and there's a place for feelings and emotions in the, in the, in the um, Christian life. And actually, some of us reform folks could use a lot more of it. But that's not what this passage is about. Lukewarm is not about emotions in that sense. I think this is a really important message because what Jesus is saying is that your faith isn't something that you just sort of slip on like a Patagonia pullover every fall. It's actually something that you should be wearing all the time, right? It's not something you choose to kind of grab here and there. We think of faith as, this is an illustration for my friend, we think of faith as like an app on a phone where like we pull it up if we really need it. Like I need some prayer, so let me pull up the prayer app. Or I need some encouragement, let me pull up the encouragement app. Or I need a sermon, let me pull up the sermon app. Faith instead is, is actually the operating system, right? It's the thing that runs every other app. And so everything in our life should be informed by our faith. Actually, it is. The question is, is it actually informed by your walk with Jesus' faith? Or is it informed by your faith in something else? So our faith should inform how we think about everything. Relationships, compatible operating systems. We can have that talk later. That's actually why it's really important. Because it really affects the way that you do everything in your life the way your faith runs your system. So compatible operating systems is a great way to think about it. But also it informs the way you think about money, the way you think about work, the way you think about school, the way you think about family, all those things. Your faith is the thing that runs it. And so what Jesus is saying is you lack zeal. Laodiceans, you have no passionate commitment, which is how I'll define zeal. You have no passionate commitment for the things I've called you to be passionately committed to. You are lukewarm, and I'm disgusted by your compromise. That's their symptom. So where did it come from? How did they get there? Let's talk about causes, possible causes. Jesus sort of tells us in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, most cities have mottos or like slogans. Uh, my city, my town, less, it's less than a town now. It's lost its township because it's shrinking. Brundage, Alabama, our slogan used to be Alabama's own antique city. And then everybody left, and including the antique stores. And now it's just like, it could be known as like another Alabama-like struggling little town. Um, that's the slogan. So that's my town. Clemson is in season every season. I don't know what that means. Um, I read a couple, Roswell, New Mexico, is there's more to see than just the aliens. I think that's hilarious. Um, apparently, Laodicea, I keep combining that, Laodicea's uh, city motto may have simply been something like, we need nothing. That's what Jesus says. He says, you say, I need nothing. It's almost like it was their, their slogan. And there's a reason for that. Laodicea was, besides their water problem, they were sort of like doing great in every other area. Um, I'm going to give you some, some information I learned from lots of different scholars, but Dennis Johnson specifically helped me with this one. 
he talked about how there are three main areas Laodicea was sort of like killing it in, right? One is their money. Like they were just super rich. They had banks full of gold. They had resources like crazy. Um, at one point, a huge earthquake wiped out this part of area of the world. And Laodicea was so rich that they declined all of the government help from the Roman Empire, the only city that denied the empire's help. And they said, we need nothing, right? Second area that they were very prosperous in was in their medicine. So Laodicea was, Laodicea, I'm just going to say it over and over again. They were known also for their like advanced medical school. And history, like historians recently have actually been uncovering some of this information. They're saying that apparently there was some like really advanced eye solution that was, it, that was developed in Laodicea, like a salve for weak eyes so that people could see better. It's pretty interesting, right? They're saying we need nothing. We're great. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of medicine. Third, last one, merchandise. They were known for their garments, their clothing. Apparently they had these special sheep who had special wool, and everybody wanted the wool from those kind of sheep. And so they had exports going all over the known world. Um, the, the people of Laodicea were the best-dressed people in the empire. In other words, we need nothing, right? We don't need your money. We don't need your medicine. We don't need your clothes. We have everything that we need in this city. This is basically the New York City of Asia Minor, right? It's like Wall Street meets the Garment District meets all the advanced medical schools in the area. They were super proud of this. So if that's true, it may surprise you that Jesus says, you say you need nothing, but in reality, you are poor, blind, and naked. What the risen Christ is saying to these churches is you think you've got it going on, but you are living in sort of an upside-down world of reality. The world that you see and that you think is working out for you is actually the thing that is keeping you from real faith. The thing that you're most prosperous in is the thing that is actually keeping you from a deeper relationship with me. Jesus is introduced in this passage. I said every passage begins with sort of an introduction to his character. And the one that he chooses in this passage earlier was he talk, called himself the Word, uh, the Witness, um, and the Amen. Those two are kind of getting at the same idea, which is this. Jesus is the truth. Amen is another way of saying this is true. So when we say in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying in Jesus' name, this is true. And so Jesus is the amen. He is the truth. And Jesus is the witness. He is the supreme revelation from God, right? And so Jesus sees and Jesus knows and he knows what's really going on with them. And that's why he says to them, you may have all the money in the world but you were spiritually bankrupt. You may think you have made some advances in medicine so people can see, but you are spiritually blind. You may be clothed in the best possible dresses and suits of the city, but you are spiritually naked and exposed. You don't see what I see, is what Jesus is telling them. And so what is the underlying cause underneath their symptoms of lukewarmness? He says in verse 20, this is it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's a very interesting statement. Because what the church in Laodicea had ultimately done is they had excluded Jesus from the deepest parts of their lives. 
they left him on the outside. And they said, Jesus, you can have some of our like church service stuff. You cannot have access to my money. Jesus, you can have like my Bible study time. That's fine. But you do not have access to my career success. They were leaving Jesus on the outside of some of the things that they treasured most. They were going through the motions, sure, but they did not let Jesus in. They're lukewarm. They cared more about their savings than they did their salvation. They cared more about how they looked on the outside than what was true of them on the inside. They cared more about their accomplishments by the world's eyes than they did of what their Jesus had accomplished for them by overcoming the world. So we need to talk about it. We need to think about this. We're not so different from the Laodiceans, are we? I hope you say uh, you're not because I know I'm not. (laughs) I just think I've thought much this week about all the different ways that I can be Laodicean in my own life and heart. As a pastor, I can sort of try to present this world outside of me that does not bear witness to some of the things that I struggle with on the inside of me, right? I can try to convince you that I know stuff while really hiding the deep insecurities that I really feel. Um, I can convince you that I'm a, I'm a you know, praying man of the cloth when it can just be performance and dry. I can be spiritually dry while being like fruitful in ministry. It's gross. We can do that in our Christian walk, right? We can sort of present that we have it all together. And so what would Jesus say to the church in America? I mean, that should be our discussion question of all discussion questions. But what would Jesus say to the southern church uh, in California? No, in South Carolina. Where's California? I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm going to have to Google while I keep forgetting words. So what would Jesus say to the Christian church across South Carolina? What would he say to Christians in Clemson? What would he say to Clemson students? who claim the name of Jesus on this campus, what would Jesus say of RUF? Would he say, you're presenting like you have it all together. What's really going on? Would he say, there's some key areas of your life that you have left me out of? You could argue that the things the Laodiceans were most known for were the things that actually kept them from a deeper relationship with Jesus. What are you most known for? What are you most proud of? What is the thing that you post about the most? That you bring up in conversations the most? That people would say, this is your thing. Is it possible that you've made it your thing because you're trying to build security apart from Jesus and you won't even give Him access to this area of your life? So if that's the diagnosis, are there any steps that Jesus would recommend? Well, he gives us sort of three, I would say three steps of treatment that we'll end with. Beginning in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So step one, treatment number one, Jesus says, you must buy from me. This may sound odd, because Jesus just told them they're broke. (laughs) Right? He says, you're poor. You're pitiable. 
Now buy from me gold. What is he doing? The good news is Jesus doesn't trade in the currency of gold, but grace. And what he's offering is an opportunity. He says, yes, you're poor, but come to me and I will make you rich. Of course, he's not talking about money, money. It reminds me often uh, of that line that we sometimes sing in RUF as an old hymn that says, all the fitness that he requires is to fill your need of him. It's a great line. All the fitness that he requires is to fill your need of him. The thing we most need in our relationship with Jesus is need. And it's like one of the hardest things to get, isn't it? It's one of the hardest things to admit to. In fact, we try to build our lives in order to not be needy, in order to not be dependent. We're just saying, I need thee every hour. It's a great song and it's a great prayer. Do we feel it? Are we honest about it? Jesus invites us to come to him to receive all that he offers. As God put it through the prophet Isaiah, Lucy read this earlier, where he says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. You hear what he's saying? He's offering. If you're broke, I have something for you. He says, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It makes me think of Michael Scott again. Because I often think of Michael Scott when he realizes how broke he is and Creed gives him that age-old advice. You've got to declare bankruptcy, man. And he says, it's nature's do-over. <laughs> and Michael thinks about it. You see it on his face. And what does he do? Well, he walks out into like the bullpen, they call it, where all the desks are and looks around. And he screams, I declare bankruptcy. Like he declares it. He declares bankruptcy. And then Oscar pulls him aside and he's like, hey, you can't just declare it. <laughs> um, actually, like Jesus is saying that's exactly what he wants us to do. <laughs> this is actually where Michael Scott was right for once. Declaring spiritual bankruptcy is actually the invitation here. It's to wrestle with, okay, what are the areas where I am keeping Jesus out? And to admit that stuff, right? And to say that I really am needy. This is what we do when we come to Jesus, who is rich in mercy, and we buy from Him through grace. He became poor so that we might be rich in Him. Think about what Jesus is saying here in this passage. He's saying, you're poor. I will make you rich. How does Jesus make us rich? By becoming poor. He's saying, you're actually naked. I will clothe you with white garments. How does Jesus clothe them? By becoming naked and dying on the cross like a criminal, exposed. And then He clothes the church of Laodicea and all Christians today with His white righteous garments. He says, you are actually blind. Come to Me and I will give you sight. I will give you a salve for your eyes to make you see. Jesus is the one who opens our eyes, who gives us sight gives us hearts to believe. So it's only when we can see and receive what He offers us and admit our spiritual bankruptcy that we would then receive the second treatment, which is simply this. So we must you know, receive from Jesus, buy from Him. Second one is that we must repent. It's right there in the text. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. C.S. Lewis has this whole um, uh, part in his 
you know, he wrote, he wrote these essays after his wife passed away that were later published into the book called A Grief Observed. And he talks about in that book how God is like a kind surgeon who cuts in order to heal. And he says this, he says, the more we believe that God hurts only in order to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, but suppose what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. And the more conscientious he is, the more he will go on cutting, Lewis says. You hear what he's saying? If you want to be loved by Jesus, if you want to live in Jesus, sometimes it's going to feel like dying because Jesus is kind. He is like a good surgeon who calls us to repentance to see things in our life that we do not like. Sometimes He takes away things like relationships because those relationships were taking us away from Him. Sometimes He allows us to face some suffering of some sort because He wants us to find comfort in Him even in the middle of the suffering, as hard as it is. Sometimes He allows you to suffer the pain of a C- minus, so that you can give up the idolatry of a 4-0. Sometimes he allows us to face embarrassment or rejection or failure. And this is something I experience in my life a lot. Because he's a good surgeon who wants to remove the deep idols in our hearts so that we will not grow lukewarm in our faith. You know, medicine doesn't always taste good. Also a parent lesson. So the medicine that we got for the rash of those girls that I did not tell you without permission, and maybe I'm violating HIPAA laws, I don't know. But that medicine, you talk about spit something out your mouth. Did not, it was a struggle bus in the Jones house because 10 days of antibiotic, like swallowing, liquidy stuff, they thought it was acid. And it was just a bad scene. Like medicine does not always taste good. However, guess what? The rash went away. Like literally, the treatments that Jesus offers means healing will come. Confession of sin and repentance is always hard and always leads to deeper growth in our relationship with Jesus. The Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another. We need that. We need that in RUF. And Jesus will bring healing. And ultimately, what Jesus brings us is more of himself. And this is the third and final treatment he offers. Not only must we buy gold and repent, we must do what? Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. And he with me. We must open the door. We must open the door. I've heard many pastors, preachers, evangelists, revival preachers use this text as a great evangelistic sermon. And it is that, no doubt, it's great. If you never believed in Jesus, He's standing at the door knocking, as, the, as they would say, you know, let Him in. Who's this letter for? It's for the church. Jesus is actually saying to Christians, you have put me out. And I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking. Will you let me in? Jesus wants to be with you. 
and He wants you to be with Him. So the question is, will you open the door? And not just one door. (laughs) All the doors. Because this is what we do. Yeah, I'll open some doors for you, Jesus. Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock, got that door open, right? My small group, I'll open the door for that. Jesus, you can participate with me there. Saturday night, I want you to stand out there, Jesus. Sunday morning, sometimes I'll open that door, sometimes I won't. In my relationships, Jesus, could you, when it comes to my future, I've got to make the decisions. There's some doors we open, some doors we don't, and we try to negotiate with Jesus. Jesus ain't negotiating. He's saying, open the door. Let me in. Every area of your life. So the question is, will we open the door? Jesus stands at the door of your education. Will you let him in? Jesus stands at the door of your friendships and of your dating life, your sexuality. Will you let him in? Jesus stands at the door of your past. That's a hard one for many of us. Jesus stands at the door of your shame, your fear, your failure, your anxiety, your depression. Will you invite him in? Jesus stands at the door of your dreams and of your future. Will you open that door? He who has an ear, let him hear. This is the final invitation Jesus offers in this passage. Listen to what he promises those to who, those who open the doors to him. When he says to the one who conquers, he's saying to the one who fights through this temptation to leave me out. This is what he promises. Verse 21, and we end with this. To the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit, on, sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray.